welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 50, This Mortal Coil, in which we hear about one of the most famous chemical triumphs, the discovery of the structure of DNA. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. Given that we have now reached 50 episodes of this podcast, I thought it would be appropriate, both in a celebratory way and in a temporally appropriate way, to talk about DNA as we reach the middle of the 20th century for chemical history. While we've all likely have heard about DNA and seen some kind of helical ladder symbol in books or even corporate healthcare logos, that icon is merely the culmination of decades and decades of research. The story of how its structure was determined is like a whodunit. It's involved, and so I decided to allow this episode to be a bit longer to show something of the race among scientists to figure it out. Let's start with the discovery of DNA. As with so many chemicals and chemical ideas, DNA was discovered in the 19th century but its significance was not fully understood for the better part of a century after that. Friedrich Miescher was a Swiss physician in the 1860s. While at college, he developed typhoid fever, which caused some deafness. As a hearing-impaired person, Miescher thought that his deafness would be an impediment to treating patients, so he turned to biochemical research instead. The German biochemist Felix Hoppe-Seiler, considered one of the founders of biochemistry itself, encouraged Miescher to investigate a type of white blood cell called a neutrophil. They were readily available in hospitals because they are found to a large extent in pus obtained from used bandages, disgusting as it sounds. The particular part of neutrophils that Miescher took an interest in was the nucleus. Now, we've discussed atomic nuclei as a chemical podcast, but not biological nuclei, the central or controlling part of cells in living creatures. So here we cross heavily into biology for a moment. Miescher's problem was how to get at neutrophils and their nuclei without the bandages interfering with his research. After testing a number of washing concoctions, he decided that a sodium sulfate solution was the best to separate the cells from the bandages. As this era was before true centrifuges, like Tay Svedberg's ultra-centrifuge from 1920, existed, Miescher had to be content with letting the cells just settle out like a precipitate to the bottom of a beaker before analyzing them. So, next he had to remove the rest of the surrounding cells from their nuclei by digesting them with protein enzymes, shook them over a solution of ether and water, and washed them with alcohol. After that, he had nuclei. To get at the chemicals inside the nuclei, he treated the nuclei to an alkaline solution, then an acid solution, and ended up with a precipitate gunk. 
This goop he finally called nuclein, for lack of better understanding. In 1953, the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine printed a biographical sketch of Albrecht Kossel, a younger colleague of Miescher, which says about nuclein, quote, "The properties of the new substance seemed unusual, as it had more strongly acidic properties than proteins were known to possess. It was soluble in dilute alkali and insoluble in dilute acids." Water and organic solvents, thus resembling mucin, although it was not mucin. It contained no sulfur, but considerable amounts of phosphorus were present. At the time, the only known phosphorus-containing organic components of tissues were lecithin and proteins. The results in 1869 were so weird that his supervising professor, Hop Seiler, redid all of Miescher's research. With the help of two students, to convince himself that this was real, and only then was it published in 1871, in a journal called Medizinische Chemische Untersuchungen, Medico-Chemical Investigations. Hop Seiler added to the research by studying nuclein from yeast, but for decades the biological purpose of nuclein remained unknown, and different batches of nuclein from different sources. Seemed to have slightly different chemical compositions, which contributed to a controversy over whether nuclein was a real thing or not. With the discovery of chromosomes as doublets in the nucleus in the 1880s, and that a substance in the chromosomes called chromatin might be the same as nuclein. Interest in nuclei increased. The German biologist Theodor Boveri, in the late 1880s, proposed that chromosomes contain whatever transmits heredity from parent to child. Also at that time, the German histologist Richard Altmann said that nuclein refers to nucleic acid plus protein, so that nucleic acid itself is without proteins. Miescher was angry. And complained in a letter to his uncle that quote, my salmon nuclein is of course identical with his nucleic acid, and it is the purest of all.、Unquote. Albrecht Kossel himself, in 1881, named DNA deoxyribonucleic acid, and found the five bases or building blocks within all nucleic acids: adenine, cytosine, guanine, and thymine in DNA. And uracil instead of thymine in RNA. DNA and RNA were found to be the two main types of nucleic acids. DNA has thymine while RNA has uracil, and the D in DNA stands for deoxy, lacking a particular oxygen atom, while RNA had that atom. Miescher himself suggested how large molecules might be responsible for heredity in 1892. He considered the issue to be one of stereochemistry, then a new idea, with the structures of chiral organic molecules and tetrahedral carbons the key. You may have wondered why I didn't mention the Austrian monk Gregor Mendel's experiments contemporaneous with Miescher on heredity and pea plants. This is because his work was ignored until Dutchman Hugo de Vries, German Karl Korens. 
and Austrian Erich von Seisenegg, all botanists, discovered Mendel's research in 1900. Mendel found that particular traits were somehow transmitted from parent plant to baby plant in a measurable way. His adherents came to be called Mendelians, whereas others felt that various traits sort of blended together in a mixture. Later experiments showed that the Mendelians were right. Over the course of the early 20th century, biochemists believed that the vast number of traits in all sorts of living creatures had to be transmitted by proteins. Proteins were constructed by 20 different amino acids, and they curved and folded themselves up into elaborate structures, as we heard about in previous episodes. They seemed quite appropriately diverse enough to hold the key to heredity. Meanwhile, we also know that Phoebus Levine came up with a plausible structure for the four different bases that comprise DNA, the main nucleic acid found in nuclei, in approximately equal amounts. But Levine's structure turned out to be a wild goose chase. It took until 1935 before Levine and his associates finally got the linkages between the various bases, if not completely correct in both DNA and RNA, at least mostly correct. In 1928, a British microbiologist, Frederick Griffith, was studying the bacterium Streptococcus pneumoniae, which causes lobar pneumonia. He researched the differences between two varieties of this microbe. The virulent variety to mice was coated by a smooth capsule made of polysaccharides, which are long-chain carbohydrate molecules, and finally coming to be understood as polymers at this time. The non-virulent variety had no capsule and looked rough under the microscope. He would give these two varieties of bacteria to mice. The live, non-virulent strain did nothing, of course. A heat-killed, dead virulent strain also did nothing to the mice. But if he mixed the dead virulent and live, non-virulent varieties together and gave them to the mice, the mice got sick. Somehow, some transforming principle, some unknown chemical, could make the harmless bacteria illness-causing. Even weirder, new generations of the bacteria could make mice sick. Somehow, the dead bacteria could pass on their virulency to later generations of non-virulent bacteria. How this worked, no one knew. Our next stop in the DNA journey is 1932, with Canadian-American bacteriologist Oswald Avery at the Rockefeller Institute. Oswald decided to continue further with Griffith's work. Initially skeptical of Griffith's results, he and associates gradually came to believe it after reproducing the observations. It was slow and difficult, and he ruled out proteins and carbohydrates as the transforming and heritable principle by 1935. He speculated that maybe nucleic acids were involved, but it was speculation without evidence. A new associate from Canada, Colin McLeod, came and continued to help Avery, though they had other unrelated research. In 1940, they focused solely on Griffith's weird results. 
By 1941, it was clear that whatever was telling cells to become virulent wasn't protein, and it wasn't fats either. But McLeod had to move on, and another researcher came in, American Macklin McCarty. Within a couple of years, they isolated the transforming principle. It was definitely nucleic acids, in particular deoxyribonucleic acid or DNA. They submitted their research to the Journal of Experimental Medicine at the end of 1943, and it was published in 1944. Naturally, the question then became, how does this operate? That same year, 1944, was when Erwin Schrödinger, a German physicist, published a collection of lectures he gave at Trinity College in Dublin the previous year. This collection he called What is Life? The Physical Aspect of the Living Cell, a speculation from first principles on how chemistry and physics can account for living processes inside cells. Among his deductions were that However, heredity is transmitted. He notes that its carrier has to be tiny but permanent. After more deductions, he finally says that this carrier of heredity must be a molecule but cannot repeat itself because of the vast amount of information it must carry. Therefore, he calls this molecule an aperiodic crystal. I should note that some researchers, particularly the geneticist Hermann Muller, Complained that Schrödinger hadn't invented anything new to science and that everything he deduced was already known. Even so, the book was most influential on a lot of people because it distilled down much of the mystery of heredity and genetics into a nice sized capsule. Aperiodic means without a definite repeating motif. At the molecular scale, unlike periodic crystals like sugar and table salt, Whose ions or molecules repeat exactly for very long distances. In order for the heredity substance to encode enough information to transmit it through generations, Schrödinger deduced that the molecule would be repetitive in overall nature, but not repeating in the small details. The book had a strong intellectual effect on many scientists. One of those scientists influenced by what is life. Was scientist Erwin Chargoff, an Austro Hungarian American who had also just heard about Avery's results showing that DNA transmitted something from one generation of bacteria to another. Immediately he considered the idea that DNA must be different from one species of living creature to the next for it to be the substance of heredity. He restructured his laboratory to work in earnest on this hypothesis. Within a couple of years, his early observations seemed to show exactly this. His mental picture of a DNA molecule at the time was a Möbius strip, which you might image as a paper ring containing a half twist. So there is neither inside nor outside. If you divided the strip along its center line, each half could have the same information as the original strip. Then, by 1949, Chargaff came up with what are now called Chargaff's rules. One, he realized that the bases in DNA, which were well known, adenine, thymine, cytosine, and guanine, are in different amounts in different species. 
This meant that the variation of bases could be huge and could lead to variation between species. Two, the amount in every DNA molecule of adenine equals the amount of thymine, and the amount of guanine also equals the amount of cytosine. Chargaff showed that Levine's tetranuclear structure of DNA was definitely wrong, but what was the structure of DNA? At this time, the mystery of DNA was heating up in the scientific world. Among the luminaries who put their expertise and ego on the line was none other than Linus Pauling, who was dealing with complex molecules like proteins, as we had heard in earlier episodes. He had just solved the alpha helix and beta sheet for proteins, and had found out about an expert in X-ray crystallography at King's College in London, named Maurice Wilkins. Who had recently taken some X-ray images of DNA? Pauling asked Wilkins to see the images, but Wilkins said no. At this time, there were only a few images published elsewhere of poor quality, and no one had any good structural data for the complete nucleotides themselves. A nucleotide is a base attached to a sugar and phosphate group. So Pauling dropped the matter until. He heard about a structure proposed by Edward Ronwin in the Journal of the American Chemical Society in November 1951. Here, Ronwin put the phosphates down the midline of the molecule, and the planar bases sticking out on both sides. Pauling, whose mind was on coiling of proteins and helixes, considered the idea that DNA too was a helix, with a phosphate sugar chain down the middle. And bases sticking out. The crude X-ray images he knew of suggested maybe a helix. Simultaneously, other researchers were thinking about DNA. An American postdoctoral researcher, James Watson, was at a scientific symposium in Naples, and heard Wilkins talk about his X-ray pictures of DNA, and recognized a repeating structure. Watson applied to work at Wilkins's lab. But was rejected. But he was accepted to do X-ray imaging of proteins with John Kendrew in England. He shared office space with a graduate student of the famous Max Perutz by the name of Francis Crick, and the pair became close friends. Watson convinced Crick to study DNA and to try to beat Pauling at his own game in figuring out DNA's structure. The duo first tried a molecule with three-stranded DNA in a helix, with phosphates in the middle. Chemically, though, it was a disaster. At a typical pH, phosphates are electron dense with a negative charge. All those phosphate groups would repel each other's negative charges and dismember the molecule fast. Plus, you needed some positive charge to balance out the negatives. They scanned through one of Pauling's own textbooks. And realized that calcium or magnesium ions might fit in the structure, but there was no evidence for these ions. They invited Wilkins plus one of his assistants, Rosalind Franklin, a brilliant specialist in X-ray crystallography of gloppy stuff that was unhappy crystallizing, to view their triumphant structure. Franklin added more chemical criticism, though. Cations in a cell 
would be surrounded by water molecules and become neutral, so they couldn't hold the phosphates in place. Plus, she added that DNA as a substance had a lot more water incorporated into its structure, ten times the amount Watson and Crick used. There was so much water, Franklin noted, that the phosphates had to be on the outside, not in the middle of the helix, so that they too were surrounded by water molecules. Watson and Crick took a dislike to Franklin because of her swift takedown of their model. The trashing of the model reached supervisory level, where Watson and Crick were assigned to other topics, but they kept at it on off hours. Meanwhile, a graduate student of Wilkins's, Bruce Fraser, talked about the structure with Franklin, and they offered a three-chain helix, the bases stacked up, and phosphates on the external surface. By the spring of 1952, Franklin took new X-ray images of DNA, which were quite good and clear. Now called photos 51 and 52, Pauling came to England, but thought Wilkins would still refuse his request to see DNA images, so he never got to view them. In another meanwhile event in 1952, American scientists Alfred Hershey and Martha Chase presented a paper which settled the DNA heredity link definitively. They tagged virus DNA with one radioactive isotope. And tagged virus protein with a different isotope. Following the isotopes, they showed that the protein did nothing, and the DNA was the culprit in heredity. Immediately, the biochemical world switched from protein heredity to DNA heredity, as did Linus Pauling. In September of 1952, Pauling's son Peter became a graduate student in biochemistry at Cambridge, and thus did Watson and Crick learn. That Peter's father, Linus, was still interested in DNA, so they realized it was a race which they perceived as between them and the great Linus Pauling. We'll be right back. Hi, and welcome to Hiss and Tell, a cat podcast where we delve deep into the fascinating world of feline behavior. With your host, me, Christina Wilson, a professional animal behaviorist. Each episode features insightful discussions with leading veterinarians, dedicated researchers and scientists, experts in cat behavior and training, and so much more. Join me as we decode the complexities of pet loss, unravel the mysteries of feline health and behavior, and discover the latest research findings. I'll meet you at Hiss and Tell. By November 1952, Pauling heard a colloquium by Robley Williams using an electron microscope on DNA strands. We haven't discussed this technique yet, so I will quickly say that you can theoretically use any waves to make a magnified image. For this method, you can use electrons as waves with much smaller wavelengths than light. Anyway, seeing the ultra magnified image of DNA strands. 1.5 nanometers across, which looked cylindrical to Pauling, confirmed his helix idea, especially after sketching structures on paper. Again, Pauling put the bases on the outside and the phosphate on the inside, but he hadn't talked to Franklin like Watson and Crick had to hear her biochemical criticisms. 
one of Pauling's assistants spent time trying to get the actual structures to fit and failed. But Pauling still believed in his overall structure, even if the silly details didn't work. He sent a paper on December 31st to the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Peter Pauling told Watson and Crick of this, and the pair were depressed that they lost the race. But then they recalled one of Chargaff's rules, that adenine and thymine were equal, and guanine and cytosine were equal. They got to thinking that perhaps the bases weren't outside, but inside to take advantage of the equality, using Franklin's comments on their original structure. Then Linus sent Peter a copy of his manuscript in February 1953, who showed it to Watson and Crick, and the duo's jaws dropped. The structure was remarkably like theirs, but more compact. This allowed no cations to balance the phosphate-negative charges. Furthermore, Pauling used hydrogen bonds to link the phosphate oxygens together, but at typical pHs, where are these hydrogens coming from? The structure is inherently unstable. How could the wonderful Dr. Pauling forget this? Soon the whole of King's College were snickering over Pauling's mistake. Crick sent a letter to Pauling, saying with typical British humor that, quote, we were very struck by the ingenuity of the structure. The only doubt I have is that I do not see what holds it together, unquote. Watson and Crick were given permission to restart full-time their research into DNA. As a reward, Wilkins let Watson view Franklin's photos 51 and 52 of DNA without her knowledge. Watson and Crick finally got reasonable structures for guanine and thymine, positioning the hydrogen atoms correctly, thereby allowing for actual hydrogen bonds between the bases themselves and not involving the phosphate groups. Because of the equality in amounts of adenine and thymine, and guanine and cytosine, they fit the adenine hydrogen bonded to the thymine, and the cytosine hydrogen bonded to the guanine. They sent off their paper for publication. Toward the end of the paper, they noted, quote, It has not escaped our notice that the specific pairing we have postulated immediately suggests a possible copying mechanism for the genetic material, unquote. By April, Pauling returned to England and saw their model compared with Franklin's X-ray images. He conceded that Watson and Crick were probably correct. The Watson-Crick double helix, with phosphate groups on the outside and bases in the middle, hydrogen bonded to each other to form ladder-like rungs, was published in the journal Nature on April 25, 1953. A more complete story of their work written by Watson, called The Double Helix, became a science classic. Simultaneously in that issue of Nature, Maurice Wilkins and Rosalind Franklin published research showing the X-ray images supporting the double helix structure. Science historians have commented that determining the DNA structure ranks high up with Newton and Einstein's works as among the most important ideas ever developed. So we have what's known as a pair of complementary strands of DNA coiled together into a helix. 
For a cell to reproduce, the strands separate and regenerate new complementary strands to each form a complete set of DNA. This means that whatever code the cell uses to translate the DNA instructions into actual living processes has a pair of complementary symbols. An adenine on one strand corresponds to a thymine on the other. A guanine on one strand corresponds to a cytosine on the other. Precisely how this complementary scheme gets translated into action is a topic for another episode later in our series. There were some ethics breaches on Watson and Crick's part, however. The first clue here is a statement in their published paper at the end noting Wilkins's and Franklin's simultaneous communications to the journal. Specifically, the pair stated that, quote, we were not aware of the details of the results presented there when we devised our structure, unquote. That is not true. They knew of and viewed the images Franklin took in order to create their DNA model. In fact, Franklin was experiencing subtle and not-so-subtle discrimination against women at King's College, including not being allowed to eat at the dining hall, where many informal discussions among colleagues occurred. However, I should note, many researchers ate in the joint dining room, which was co-ed. There was also anti-Semitism at King's College. Rosalind was Jewish. Her parents, during World War II, assisted getting Jews, including children on the Kindertransport, out of Nazi Germany. She wrote to a friend that, quote, At King's, there are neither Jews nor foreigners, unquote. She was in the process of quitting and gave her famous images 51 and 52 to Wilkins. Wilkins then showed her photographs to Watson without telling her. She was leaving for Birkbeck College. Watson and Crick never acknowledged her image in their paper. Some of this misogyny is found in Watson's 1968 book as well. For example, sentences like, quote, Clearly, Rosie had to go or be put in her place. Unfortunately, Maurice could not see any decent way to give Rosie the boot. Unquote. Or, quote, Certainly a bad way to go out into the foulness of a November night was to be told by a woman to refrain from venturing an opinion about a subject for which you were not trained, unquote. Examination of her laboratory notes surrounding photos 51 and 52 clearly show she knew that DNA was a helix, and her comments to Watson and Crick on their tri-stranded model give even more credence to the idea that, if she didn't know the actual structure, she was extremely close to discovering it. At Birkbeck, Franklin worked on the structure of the tobacco mosaic virus, which is an interesting story itself. While at Birkbeck, she developed ovarian cancer. She died in 1958, so was ineligible to receive the Nobel Prize, which Wilkins, Watson, and Crick received in 1962. In our next episode, we look at quantum mechanical bonding theories for inorganic molecules and an organometallic compound that helped revitalize the field when it was discovered. Until then, brave the elements! Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast.